This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas de Quincey The English Mail Coach, or The Glory of Motion, Part 2 Going Down with Victory but the grandest chapter of our experience within the whole mail-coach service was on those occasions when we went down from London with the news of victory. A period of about ten years stretched from Trafalgar to Waterloo, the second and third years of which period, 1806 and 1807, were comparatively sterile, but the rest, from 1805 to 1815 inclusively, furnished a long succession of victories, the least of which, in a contest of that portentous nature, had an inappreciable value of position, partly for its absolute interference with the plans of our enemy, but still more from its keeping alive in central Europe the sense of a deep-seated vulnerability in France. Even to tease the coasts of our enemy, to mortify them by continual blockades, to insult them by capturing if it were but a baubling schooner under the eyes of their arrogant armies, repeated from time to time a sullen proclamation of power lodged in a quarter to which the hopes of Christendom turned in secret. How much more loudly must this proclamation have spoken in the audacity of having bearded the elite of their troops, and having beaten them in pitched battles? Footnote regarding audacity. Such the French accounted it, and it has struck me that Salt would not have been so popular in London, at the period of Her Present Majesty's coronation, or in Manchester, on occasion of his visit to that town, if they had been aware of the insolence with which he spoke of us in notes written at intervals from the field of Waterloo as though it had been mere felony in our army to look a French one in the face, he said more than once, Here are the English, we have them, they are caught en flagrant délit. Yet no man should have known us better, no man had drunk deeper from the cup of humiliation than Salt had in the north of Portugal, during the flight from an English army, and subsequently at Albuera, in the bloodiest of recorded battles. End of footnote. Five years of life it was worth paying down for the privilege of an outside place on a mail-coach when carrying down the first tidings of any such event. And it is to be noted that, from our insular situation and the multitude of our frigates disposable for the rapid transmission of intelligence, really did any unauthorized rumor steal away a prelibation from the aroma of regular dispatches. The government official news was generally the first news. From 8 p.m. to 15 or 20 minutes later, imagine the males assembled on parade in Lombard Street, where, at that time, was seated the general post office. In what exact strength we mustered I do not remember, but, from the length of each separate attelage, we filled the street, though a long one, and though we were drawn up in double file. On any night the spectacle was beautiful. The absolute perfection of all the appointments about the carriages and the harness, and the magnificence of the horses, were what might first have fixed the attention. 
Every carriage, on every morning in the year, was taken down to an inspector for examination. Wheels, axles, linchpins, pole, glasses, etc., were all critically probed and tested. Every part of every carriage had been cleaned, every horse had been groomed, with as much rigour as if they belonged to a private gentleman, and that part of the spectacle offered itself always. But the night before us is a night of victory, and behold, to the ordinary display, what a heart-shaking addition! Horses, men, carriages, all are dressed in laurels and flowers, oak leaves and ribbons. The guards, who are His Majesty's servants, and the coachmen, who are within the privilege of the post office, wear the royal liveries, of course, and as it is summer, for all the land victories were won in summer, they wear on this fine evening these liveries exposed to view, without any covering of upper coats. Such a costume, and the elaborate arrangement of the laurels in their hats, dilated their hearts, by giving to them openly an official connection with the great news, in which already they have the general interest of patriotism. That great national sentiment surmounts and quells all sense of ordinary distinctions. Those passengers who happen to be gentlemen are now hardly to be distinguished as such except by dress. The usual reserve of their manner in speaking to the attendants has on this night melted away. One heart, one pride, one glory connects every man by the transcendent bond of his English blood. The spectators, who are numerous beyond precedent, express their sympathy with these fervent feelings by continual hurrahs. Every moment are shouted aloud by the post-office servants the great ancestral names of cities known to history through a thousand years. Lincoln, Winchester, Portsmouth, Gloucester, Oxford, Bristol, Manchester, York, Newcastle, Edinburgh, Perth, Glasgow, expressing the grandeur of the empire by the antiquity of its towns, and the grandeur of the mail establishment by the diffusive radiation of its separate missions. Every moment you hear the thunder of lids locked down upon the mailbags. That sound to each individual mail is the signal for drawing off, which process is the finest part of the entire spectacle. Then come the horses into play. Horses! Can these be horses that, unless powerfully reined in, would bound off with the action and gestures of leopards? What stir! What sea-like ferment! What a thundering of wheels! What a trampling of horses! What farewell cheers! What redoubling peals of brotherly congratulation, connecting the name of the particular mail, Liverpool forever, with the name of the particular victory, Badajoz forever, or Salamanca forever. The half-slumbering consciousness that, all night long and all the next day, perhaps for even a longer period, many of these mails, like fire racing along a train of gunpowder, will be kindling at every instant new successions of burning joy, has an obscure effect of multiplying the victory itself, by multiplying to the imagination into infinity the stages of its progressive diffusion. A fiery arrow seems to be let loose, which from that moment is destined to travel, almost without intermission, westwards for three hundred miles, northwards for six hundred, and the sympathy of our Lombard Street friends at parting is exalted a hundredfold by a sort of visionary sympathy with the approaching sympathies, yet unborn, which we are going to evoke. Footnote regarding three hundred miles. 
Of necessity, this scale of measurement, to an American, if he happens to be a thoughtless man, must sound ludicrous. Accordingly, I remember a case in which an American writer indulges himself in the luxury of a little lying, by ascribing to an Englishman a pompous account of the Thames, constructed entirely upon American ideas of grandeur, and concluding in something like these terms. And, sir, arriving at London, this mighty father of rivers attains a breadth of at least two furlongs, having in its winding course traversed the astonishing distance of one hundred and seventy miles. And this the candid American thinks it is fair to contrast with the scale of the Mississippi. Now it is hardly worth while to answer a pure falsehood gravely, else one might say that no Englishman out of Bedlam ever thought of looking in an island for the rivers of a continent, nor consequently could have thought of looking for the peculiar grandeur of the Thames in the length of its course, or in the extent of soil which it drains. Yet, if he had been so absurd, the American might have recollected that a river, not to be compared with the Thames even as to volume of water, viz. the Tiber, has contrived to make itself heard of in this world for twenty-five centuries to an extent not reached, nor likely to be reached very soon, by any river, however corpulent, of his own land. The glory of the Thames is measured by the density of the population to which it ministers, by the commerce which it supports, by the grandeur of the empire in which, though far from the largest, it is the most influential stream. Upon some such scale, and not by a transfer of Columbian standards, is the course of our English males to be valued. The American may fancy the effect of his own valuations to our English ears, by supposing the case of a Siberian glorifying his country in these terms. These rascals, sir, in France and England, cannot march half a mile in any direction without finding a house where food can be had and lodging. Whereas such is the noble desolation of our magnificent country, that in many a direction for a thousand miles, I will engage a dog shall not find shelter from a snowstorm, nor a wren find an apology for breakfast. End of footnote. Liberated from the embarrassments of the city, and issuing into the broad, uncrowded avenues of the northern suburbs, we begin to enter upon our natural pace of ten miles an hour. In the broad light of the summer evening, the sun perhaps only just at the point of setting, we are seen from every story of every house. Heads of every age crowd to the windows, young and old understand the language of our victorious symbols, and rolling volleys of sympathizing cheers run along behind and before our course. The beggar, rearing himself against the wall, forgets his lameness, real or assumed, thinks not of his whining trade, but stands erect with bold exulting smiles as we pass him. The victory has healed him, and says, Be thou whole! Women and children, from garrets alike and cellars, look down or look up with loving eyes upon our gay ribbons and our martial laurels, sometimes kiss their hands, sometimes hang out as signals of affection, pocket-handkerchiefs, aprons, dusters, anything that lies ready to their hands. On the London side of Barnet, to which we draw near within a few minutes after nine, observe that private carriage which is approaching us. The weather being so warm, the glasses are all down, and one may read, as on the stage of a theatre, everything that goes on within the carriage. 
It contains three ladies, one likely to be a mamma, and two of seventeen or eighteen, who are probably her daughters. What lovely animation, what beautiful unpremeditated pantomime, explaining to us every syllable that passes in these ingenuous girls. By the sudden start and raising of the hands, on first discovering our laureled equipage, by the sudden movement and appeal to the elder lady from both of them, and by the heightened colour on their animated countenances, we can almost hear them saying, See, see, look at their laurels. Oh, mamma, there has been a great battle in Spain, and it has been a great victory. In a moment we are on the point of passing them. We passengers, I on the box and the two on the roof behind me, raise our hats. The coachman makes his professional salute with the whip, the guard even, though punctilious on the matter of his dignity as an officer under the crown, touches his hat. The ladies move to us in return with a winning graciousness of gesture, all smile on each side in a way that nobody could misunderstand, and that nothing short of a grand national sympathy could so instantaneously prompt. Will these ladies say that we are nothing to them? Oh no, they will not say that. They cannot deny, they do not deny, that for this night they are our sisters, gentle or simple, scholar or illiterate servant. For twelve hours to come, we on the outside have the honour to be their brothers. Those poor women again, who stop to gaze upon us with delight at the entrance of Barnet, and seem by their air of weariness to be returning from labour, do you mean to say that they are washerwomen and charwomen? Oh, my poor friend, you are quite mistaken. They are nothing of the kind. I assure you they stand in a higher rank. For this one night they feel themselves by birthright to be daughters of England, and answer to no humbler title. Every joy, however, even rapturous joy, such is the sad law of earth, may carry with it grief, or fear of grief, to some. Three miles beyond Barnet we see approaching us another private carriage, nearly repeating the circumstances of the former case. Here also the glasses are all down. Here also is an elderly lady seated. But the two amiable daughters are missing. For this single young person, sitting by the lady's side, seems to be an attendant. So I judge from her dress, and her air of respectful reserve. The lady is in mourning, and her countenance expresses sorrow. At first she does not look up, so that I believe she is not aware of our approach until she hears the measured beating of our horse's hoofs. Then she raises her eyes to settle them painfully on our triumphal equipage. Our decorations explain the case to her at once, but she beholds them with apparent anxiety, or even with terror. Some time before this, I, finding it difficult to hit a flying mark when embarrassed by the coachman's person and reins intervening, had given to the guard a courier evening paper containing the gazette for the next carriage that might pass. Accordingly he tossed it in so folded that the huge capitals expressing some legend as glorious victory might catch the eye at once. To see the paper, however, at all, interpreted as it was by her ensigns of triumph, explained everything, and, if the guard were right in thinking the lady to have received it with a gesture of horror, it could not be doubtful that she had suffered some deep personal affliction in connection with this Spanish war. Here now was the case of one who, having formerly suffered, might, erroneously perhaps, be distressing herself with anticipations of another similar suffering. 
That same night, and hardly three hours later, occurred the reverse case. A poor woman, who too probably would find herself, in a day or two, to have suffered the heaviest of afflictions by the battle, blindly allowed herself to express an exultation so unmeasured in the news and its details as to give her the appearance which amongst Celtic Highlanders is called Fay. This was at some little town, I forget what, where we happened to change horses near midnight. Some fair or wake had kept the people out of their beds. We saw many lights moving about as we drew near, and perhaps the most impressive scene on our route was our reception at this place. The flashing of torches and the beautiful radiance of blue lights, technically Bengal lights, upon the heads of our horses. The fine effect of such a showery and ghostly illumination falling upon flowers and glittering laurels, whilst all around the massy darkness seemed to invest us with walls of impenetrable blackness, together with the prodigious enthusiasm of the people, composed a picture at once scenical and affecting. As we stayed for three or four minutes I alighted, and immediately from a dismantled stall on the street, where perhaps she had been presiding at some part of the evening, advanced eagerly a middle-aged woman. The sight of my newspaper it was that had drawn her attention upon myself. The victory which we were carrying down to the provinces on this occasion was the imperfect one of Talavera. I told her the main outline of the battle. But her agitation, though not the agitation of fear, but of exultation rather, and enthusiasm, had been so conspicuous when listening, and when first applying for information, that I could not but ask her if she had not some relation in the Peninsular Army. Oh, yes, her only son was there. In what regiment? He was a trooper in the 23rd Dragoons. My heart sank within me as she made that answer. This sublime regiment, which an Englishman should never mention without raising his hat to their memory, had made the most memorable and effective charge recorded in military annals. They leapt their horses, over a trench where they could, into it and with the result of death or mutilation when they could not. What proportion cleared the trench is nowhere stated. Those who did closed up and went down upon the enemy with such divinity of fervour, I used the word divinity by design, the inspiration of God must have prompted this movement to those whom even then he was calling to his presence, that two results followed. As regarded the enemy, this 23rd Dragoons, not, I believe, originally 350 strong, paralyzed a French column 6,000 strong, then ascending the hill, and fixed the gaze of the whole French army. As regarded themselves, the 23rd was supposed at first to have been all but annihilated, but eventually, I believe, not so many as one in four survived. And this, then, was the regiment, a regiment already for some hours known to myself and all London as stretched, by a large majority, upon one bloodier seldomer, in which the young trooper served, whose mother was now talking with myself in a spirit of such hopeful enthusiasm. Did I tell her the truth? Had I the heart to break up her dreams? No. I said to myself, to-morrow or the next day she will hear the worst. For this night, wherefore should she not sleep in peace? After to-morrow the chances are too many that peace will forsake her pillow. This brief respite let her owe this to my gift and my forbearance. But if I told her not of the bloody price that had been paid, 
there was no reason for suppressing the contributions from her son's regiment to the service and glory of the day. For the very few words that I had time for speaking, I governed myself accordingly. I showed her not the funeral banners under which the noble regiment was sleeping. I lifted not the overshadowing laurels from the bloody trench in which horse and rider lay mangled together. But I told her how these dear children of England, privates and officers, had leapt their horses over all obstacles as gaily as hunters to the morning's chase. I told her how they rode their horses into the mists of death, saying to myself, but not saying to her, and laid down their young lives for thee, O Mother England, as willingly poured out their noble blood as cheerfully as ever after a long day's sport when infants they had rested their wearied heads upon their mother's knees or had sunk to sleep in her arms. It is singular that she seemed to have no fears, even after this knowledge that the twenty-third dragoons had been conspicuously engaged, for her son's safety. But so much was she enraptured by the knowledge that his regiment, and therefore he, had rendered eminent service in the trying conflict, a service which had actually made them the foremost topic of conversation in London, that in the mere simplicity of her fervent nature she threw her arms around my neck and, poor woman, kissed me. End of the English Mail Coach or The Glory of Motion Part 2 Recording by Tim McKenzie